0: This is the Otherwise Podcast, Season Two. I'm Casey Tigrett. I'm your host. I'm a pastor, author, and spiritual director. You won't find many people who have an ambiguous attitude about poetry. You won't find people who are like, meh, poetry's okay. You'll find people who love it and who read it and who talk about it. And you'll have people who, it just doesn't make a difference in their life. I used to be in the second camp. I can't tell you of a poem that impacted me that I read anywhere in the realm of high school or early college. However, it was in later college that I was exposed to some poems that really moved me. You see, poetry requires us to read differently. It requires us to use words differently. It requires us to think a little slower. And with those of us who are high-wired, who are hooked into social media, who are constantly receiving information, thinking slower might be the best thing that could ever happen to us. And so when I thought about how should we start season two, where is a place that wisdom is being given that we often miss it? I thought of a poet. I thought of a poem. The poet is Padre Gotuma, and the poem that I thought of was Narrative Theology Number 2 which prompted me to contact and see about a conversation with Padraig. Padraig is a poet, as I said, but he wasn't a poet uh, for the sake of writing poetry. He was a poet for the sake of his own hunger. That's where he began. He was a poet because it was something that was inside of him, because he loved language, because he loved reading slowly, and because he's from a part of the world in Ireland where words had a transforming effect, where poets were part of their revolutionary history. My conversation with Padraig is going to span all of those things and more. However, as I said, Padraig is a lover of words, which means that when I throw out a word like wisdom, his response is going to be complex and well thought through. Uh, So when when it comes to wisdom... Uh, you know definitions, and I know how much you love language, so I think this will make sense. Uh, definitions are important. So when you begin to, when you think about wisdom, and you begin to talk about it, where where does wisdom begin for you? Where does one start in the process of understanding and gaining wisdom?
1: Um, <clears throat> I, I tend to avoid things, words like wisdom. I, I'm interested in thinking about a, a person who is wise, and I think what is wise can just come for a moment we can all be wise for a moment and then um idiotic the next and so i, I see wisdom as something that comes uh through the human experience and through human encounter and uh, can come sometimes unbidden you can find yourself saying something that you didn't realize was wise um i remember one time we, close to the end of I was in therapy for three years and close to the end of being in therapy and it was ending because I was moving back to Ireland from Australia um I woke up one morning at really early and woke up perfectly refreshed in the middle of a thought and realized I'm profoundly disappointed with myself for this one reason and the clarity was there and it was it was a moment of of real wisdom um I I don't live in that moment, (laughs) but somehow the dream, the unconscious, whatever was happening, and however, whatever way I woke up, all kinds of unknowable things conspired to bring me to a moment of wisdom, um, to know what what was happening right in that moment and what was informing uh, a, a whole season of my life and a whole mood. And so I think of, of wisdom being something that comes through the human experience like that, often unbidden, sometimes unknown. I don't think wisdom sits on any one person permanently. We are all capable of being um, very ignorant about um, important things. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean, ignorance is just a fact of life. I don't mean, I mean ignorant that is a different thing. Um, I'm very fond of the word apocalypse that you find in the Christian texts, uh, the name given in Greek to the last book of the Christian Testament. An apocalypse has nothing to do with the future, the word. It has everything to do with theatre. And I think it's the word used for pulling back the curtain. And I think wisdom can sometimes mean pulling back the curtain and seeing what is already there, seeing the powers, seeing the dynamics that are there. And I think... That's what I think
0: yeah. of when it comes to wisdom. It, so, uh, a word like wisdom, it, like any word, is attempting to name something, um, and you can give something many names. Um, so, when it comes out as either wisdom or apocalypse, and is is there a is there a way of naming things like wisdom that is natural? to you because of your story and where you came from, is there a a uniqueness to the way that you name things? Do you feel, uh, because of where, because of your background, because of where you come from, because of the work, uh, that you do primarily as a, as a poet, but also, um, in the community at Corimila, is there something about naming that rises out of the place where we are or is naming sort of a, a general universal human experience? Um,
1: I I think it's both. It's a general experience and then it it arises in particular ways. Um, David Stevens was one of the leaders of Coramila. He died very suddenly and unexpectedly in 2010. And he had a great question that he'd ask new people who come onto staff, which was after three or four weeks, he would say, what do you see? And he was always interested in what the new person saw because he had the feeling that they saw what was absolutely there and that many people who have been there for a long time perhaps don't Uh, i i think there's a deep wisdom in cori which i have always found really beneficial and challenging which is to say that we don't stand outside the perils of sectarianism and diagnose it we stand inside the dynamics of sectarianism and confess and so to to recognize that the dynamics that you see in the world that there needs to be a recognition of how is it that I might be complicit in those things, and how can naming it be the first step towards engaging with courage, love and learning.
0: Poetry, if anything, is about naming something, and it's about engaging it with courage, love and learning. This is what we miss, and it's oftentimes what we need the most. It's good for a poet to bring that wisdom back to us, especially those of us who follow Jesus. What would it look like for us to wisely engage our world with courage, with love, and with learning? Um, And that's a very
1: particular thing here. Other situations of conflict and dynamics around the world, it is inappropriate to think of the person who might be affected by something to consider their complicity in it. But certainly in our context here, um, where sectarianism and divisions regarding Britishness and Irishness have been going on for 700 years here. We have a long memory, and there's a lot of blame to be shared in terms of the question about how we live well with each other. And so I, I think that's a wise practice, and I, and it's challenging, and it, it undoes an ontology about who was victim, who was perpetrator, who was right, who was wrong, who was wise... It, it asks you to be willing to hear something very important from the
0: very new and very recent, as well
1: as pay attention to the old stories.
0: There's a, the word that came to mind as you were saying that was the idea, it feels like proximity is such a, a, a huge part of this, being close enough to see something. Yeah. Uh, so whether it's the new the new members of the community or whether it's, living in a, in a place that has a deep and long history of conflict or of uh, oppression. Uh, I've been to Africa. There are certain places of Africa where you can—in Africa where you can actually feel the history or you can see it in the language and posture of the people that you meet, even though it may have pre- predated them by hundreds of years, thousands of years. You see that. You feel that in them, that proximity— um they're near it constantly and it, it gives them a name that they probably wouldn't even be able to speak out loud they just know it now for you one of the one of the interesting pieces is uh, the history of northern ireland that you began to mention um also came with the an idea that i've i've been transfixed by ever since i heard you talk about it the first time which was the idea of the troubles and not only that, but a, a, a group of poets that seem to be connected to that idea of the troubles, um, Michael Longley, Paul Muldoon, um, McNeese, some other poets in the in the history. can you because I don't know that many people understand what the troubles are. can you can you talk about that and and help help us understand what that what that's about? It's at this point that Padraig gives me a valuable history lesson. I used the phrase Northern Ireland to talk about where he lives, but that's not how he talks about it. And what I would learn is there's a good reason why that's not the way that he talks about it. And it was important for me to learn this, to gain the wisdom of knowing that things in other places are not as simple as they may seem. Sure.
1: So first of all, I'll I'll problematize the first part of your question a little bit in this Sure. This this phrase Northern Ireland. What does that mean? Who calls it that? So mm. uh, the island of Ireland. We can all agree what and where that is. Um, an island to the west of Great Britain. We don't call the two islands together the British Isles. The British call them those. We call it Britain and Ireland. So that's an important thing to disrupt a colonial narrative about calling things collectively. You didn't call it that, but some people say, "Oh yeah, you're from the British Isles." I'm like that's not what we call it. So. Um, so Uh, for about 700 years the British had interests in Ireland um, particularly initially around Dublin that was called the Pale hence the phrase that you get in English beyond the Pale Uh, so the English language Mm -hmm. was being introduced into that area in Dublin and architecture and culture for hundreds of years really Um, and then there was an attempt to do a plantation in Munster where I'm from and that was a failure really Um, the idea by doing plantation is to take lands owned by people, to give it to British, English-speaking, at that stage, Protestant um, people, and they become landlords. And uh, you, and the people who had previously farmed the land become peasant farmers on the land. So the plantation of Munster, which is in the south part of Ireland, was a failure. Um, a number of years later, a plantation of Ulster, which is the northern province of Ireland, began, and that... <coughs> depending as to how you define success, that for those who wished the plantation to be a success, was deemed a success, land was taken. Um, There were some people, local authorities, fled to seek for some help from the French, but they never returned, so all this land was taken, Um, given to uh, new landowning, Protestant British people, and then uh, the local people became uh, peasant farmers on the land. So there had always been back and forth, um, and but this introduced this new era, and it introduced the fact that there became there there became to be a larger presence and an increasingly larger presence of British identifying English speaking Protestant people in the northern the northeastern corner of Ireland. Um, Ireland wasn't partitioned uh, the partition of Ireland, so the introduction of this term Northern Ireland isn't even a hundred years old yet. That'll be coming in twenty twenty one. Um, the centenary of that marking, which some people love and some people loathe. In the 1800s, there was a famine, and the famine was not a natural famine. There was a failure of the potato blight, yes, but there was enough food in Ireland to feed more of more than more people than there were. There were eight million people living in Ireland at that stage. However, a policy was taken by the Westminster government not to close the ports, and so starving people were loading shipfuls of food, and they therefore thereafter died of hunger themselves, even though they were spending their days loading ships with food. So the population in three years went from 8 million to 6 million. A million died, a million left. And in the next 30 years, the population further shrunk to 4 million through more deaths, um, infant mortality, and then immigration, uh, which did change the face of certainly the um, eastern seaboard of the United States, as well as cities in England like Liverpool and London and Manchester and uh, Glasgow also in Scotland um, when the Irish left. Um, As a consequence of that lots of poorer Irish people moved to the cities and Belfast was the main city in the northern part of Ireland and um, uh, the population I think I'm going to get the dates wrong but from about 1860 to 1870 the population of Belfast went from something like 70,000 to 700,000 in 10 years through industry. So the Titanic, there was a shipyard here, and the Titanic was built here, and then there were linen works as well. Lots of Irish linen was made here. And so you had this city, which was really a big town, suddenly exploding into this industrial city. By and large, Protestant people tended to work in the shipyards and Catholic people tended to work in the linen works. And so you had these two distinct things. Um, the Irish language was being made illegal by the British government at that stage. And so you had the Emer- of a Catholic, Irish, English-speaking population, which is different. And linguistic colonisation is a massive feature. Around the early 1900s, um, there was well, there had always been these movements for Irish independence, um, and around the early 1900s, that did begin to galvanise. There was a fairly failed revolution in 1916, but the organisers of that revolution, poets among them, were all summarily executed very, very quickly after this failed revolution. And actually, it was the execution of the failed revolutionaries was what galvanised the country. And so while World War I was happening and British attention was away on mainland Europe, um, there was a whole process happening in Ireland where people were working towards independence and the british said that they would grant ireland independence this was kind of the beginning of the crumbling of the british empire in the early 1900s they still claimed um what was called india then incorporating india bangladesh and pakistan and all these other places all around the world um and so that b- began to crumble, but they said we, we won't leave all of it because they were there by that stage there had been two hundred and fifty, three hundred years of plantation and British people, particularly settling in the northern part of Ireland. So they literally there's there's no equivocation about this. They drew a pro they do a, a border around a majority Protestant area, and Protestants tended to equate with British identifying, saying we're in the United Kingdom, because this Act of Union from 1801 declared Ireland to be part of the United Kingdom. That wasn't a vote taken by Irish people. It was just an annexation. And so they drew a border around six counties of the north, which incorporates... Ulster is the northern province. It has nine counties. So they drew a border around six of those counties and said this is now Northern Ireland, and it had a Protestant majority. So that was in 1921, when this state, Northern Ireland, was created. And it was said without... Any doubt that Northern Ireland was a Protestant state for a Protestant people? Uh, so, i.e., if you were to be a judge, if you were to be in the police, if you were to hold um, civic power, you were going to be able to do so as Protestant. Now, you can. The the, the twenty six countries, the rest of the world, there's thirty two countries in Ireland in total. The twenty six countries that became the Irish Free State later, the Irish Republic, um, became this extraordinary um, vehicle for a very nationalised Catholicism. Then. So you could say that was the opposite, a Catholic state for a Catholic people. None of this, as you can see, has much to do with questions to do with theology or what you think about Mary or purgatory. Those are cultural dynamics and religion is part of it, but it's only one. Economic, linguistic, national, political, your sense of heritage, your sense of culture. Those are all things that are wrapped up into these terms, Catholic and Protestant, as they occur here. As time went by from the 1920s on, there was various movements to um, seek for the reunification of Ireland or to seek for um, ways within which (coughs) the Catholic population of the North could feel more um, treated as equals, because they certainly weren't. Um, There was a civil rights movement happening globally in the 60s, and there was a big civil rights movement here in the 60s, where Catholics and working-class Protestants also were, were galvanizing together, for processes to do with their own civil rights. The IRA re-emerged during that time and they galvanized the civil rights energy and that erupted into a campaign of violence that went from 1968 to 1998. And that period is called The Troubles.
0: Part of the wisdom of poetry is knowing that we live and move in a deep stream. It's a deeper stream that we've been a part of ever since we were born. A stream that has its own language, a stream that has its own faith. When Hebrews says we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, those witnesses said things. And that we're always involved, always learning from this bigger picture. And that good poetry comes from a place, from a bigger picture. If we look at the Psalms, for example, the Psalms are poems that come from a bigger place and from a bigger picture that are constantly teaching us to look around, see where we are, in order to find out who we are. Um,
1: Now, the word in Irish, troubles, tribloid, comes from a word meaning bereavements. And so to an Irish speaker's ear, when you talk about the troubles, um, you think of the bereavements. So 30 years, 3,600 people died. um, About 80,000 people were injured uh, physically. And it's it's understood that 500,000 people were affected by direct impact um regarding trauma so in a population of about 1.5 million that's an enormous proportion of the people and um, it's, it's a small population the Irish population you know all across the island of Ireland has never recovered since the famine so currently it's I think it might be 6.6 million so it's getting bigger but um anyway so that's that's how you describe the troubles. So for some people, um, they won't say Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland is a British construct of saying the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, they'll say part, you know, partitioned Ireland, or they'll just say Ireland or the North. Other people don't like to say they're Irish, they like to say they're Northern Irish, or they'll just say that they're British. That some people don't even here don't even like to use the word Irish when it comes to describing themselves. So you have a place that has conflict about what the place is. You know, living in Belfast, I'm from Cork on the very south coast, but living in Belfast, you're likely to run into some people who just go, "Right, you're a foreigner." You know, I might be Finnish as far as they're concerned in terms of my question of belonging here, which is a strange displacement for me because I I'm a nationalist. I totally understand myself to be Irish on Irish soil. I understand we have two jurisdictions. Um, my interest in, in the interim is to figure out how we can live well with each other with nobody being murdered for a national cause. How can we have a profoundly deep disagreement about the question about um, sovereignty in this part of Ireland without recourse to the possibility of threat or violence? um, And to do that as a deeply diplomatic, socially engaged project, that really interests me. But violence doesn't. Violence uh, at its heart is desperately boring, even though it's tantalising in its um, vulgar manifestation. So that's a long answer to your question. I think it's, it's important to, to give the the overall context when we talk about Troubles and we talk about Irishness here. Um, some people, when they talk about the Troubles, just say, oh, you know, everything was fine until 1968 when the Troubles emerged, as if the creation of the state of Northern Ireland emerged from pure benevolence. And, and that's a real... Um, misappropriation of history. Um, I think it's really important to look into the long history of of empire and the long shadow that empire casts on places. Uh, Places like Ireland, places like other places that have not been colonial empires in and of ourselves, but have been impacted by that. We don't have the luxury of thinking the past is the past, because the past is made present. We're speaking in English, for God's sake. That's a long shadow of that. We uh, there, There's all kinds of ways within which the past is, A, not the past, but also has been removed. You look at Australia... And you think of the sophisticated language, governance systems, and cultures that are simply gone and and are irrecoverable. It is irrecoverable to think about what the liter- literature output of an Irish-speaking Ireland that was predominantly Irish-speaking in the 21st century would have been. That's it. And so, I, I'm always interested in how the present is a manifestation of the past that is not really the past but is continually being present when I hear people say things like oh that's just in the past draw a line behind it and put it behind you it just sounds like an old shadow of empire <laughs> manifesting itself there there's a great luxury and privilege in being able to say that and usually by people who are awkward to face into the shame of their past oh they not their personal past I mean their national past and yes. Another quick thing to say within that is that um, Irish people love sometimes to have this narrative of victimhood because it is absolutely true that the presence of Britishness on the island of Ireland caused devastation. It's also true to say that the presence of Irish people in Jamaica, Montserrat, New Zealand, the southern part of the United States, um, Canada... Um, Australia the presence of Irish people just because we had victimhood it does not unfortunately mean that we were in any way more benevolent towards Indigenous peoples there I think Irish people discovered we were white in the 1800s when we went over to places that the British already were could join in maybe at the bottom rung of the colonial project and certainly you were in the colonial project and so the legacy of Irish people when we went overseas demonstrates a real Lack of wisdom to use your word regarding the question of learning the lessons of your own politic and therefore um, incorporating those into your current politics regarding the treatment of others.
0: Yeah, and what I hear is that deep stream that we're we are all and in the history of Ireland, we there is a deeper stream that has been flowing for a very long time, and that everything we do is a part of it, and nothing arises from nothing. There's no, there's nothing that's going to happen to me today that will come ex nihilo. It's, it's all coming from an experience, a memory, something that's happened in the past, uh, a repetition of a lesson that should have been learned a long time ago, or a repetition of a piece of human character that has always been, whether you read... Sumerian texts or the Old Testament, there's, there's a, there's a stream that we're all flowing in and, and it explains a lot about how we are where we are. And, and again, that idea of proximity to realize not only where we are now, but where we are in the grander narrative of the nation we live in, the people we're a part of, the state, in my context, the state that we're in is is a way of of learning and and coming to understand ourselves a little better
1: i mean you can look at global trends now like you look at brexit at the moment you might look at other places where you think there's a contemporary boorishness a return to a certain um hyperactive masculinist performance regarding power and you can think oh god isn't that terrible and there's two things happening there um one, there's always been populations of people who've been saying this has been going on all the time. It's just that there's maybe more people are aware of it now, but um, there's going to be an entire population of people that are just saying, you're just waking up to the facts that have been going on for a long time. And also, um, this is going to borrow from Battlestar Galactica a little bit. All of this has happened before and all of this will happen again, which is the opening line of their great text in Battlestar Galactica from Caprica um and i i think that there's there's a biblical understanding that time is circular and that things reoccur and that unfortunately i can't learn wisdom that i can make future generations learn because certainly past generations learned things that i have been you know, a ignorant of and b complicit in refusing to adapt into myself uh, that yeah. we seem to have as part of the human condition to the need to learn terrible things anew regularly. Um and while there is, we hope, a long arc toward justice, um, sometimes you find yourself in a contemporary circumstance where you'd have thought, I thought we'd have gotten beyond that as a population, as a community, as a family, as a nation, whatever. And the, sometimes that is true, which is great, and other times it's not
0: what what is astounding to me is how uh poetry from not only from you but other poets who would be identified with whether it's that 30 year period or whether it's just the grander concept of bereavements how how much of a role even to the point you mentioned where the the revolution that began was had was driven by the words of of poets and I run into people who are, are very literate but struggle with poetry, and I think it's because they're used to reading something where a story is the main actor. And to me, it seems in poetry that a story is part of it, but the words are the main actor, the words themselves, the value of them, the use of them, or the the distinct and unique and creative yeah. use of them. So, So how does, for you in the stream in which you swim in the proximity and the location where you are, what does poetry, what gift are you able to, do you feel like you're able to give through poetry, uh, coming out of this context and speaking to certain things, whether it's, uh, there are poems of yours that, uh, well, we could say that all of our, all of our poetry is somehow theology. It's saying something about life, which is saying something yeah. about God. Uh, mm-hmm. How, how, does, how does poetry, for you, find its place in this, in this ever-flowing stream that we're sure. a part of? Um,
1: within your question, I can hear a few questions, one of which is the tradition of poetry in Ireland. And that is a very rich history. Um, so growing up from the age of five, I was learning poems in two languages every week, off my heart. And so um, in school, this was mandatory. Um, so there's a great integration of poetry and poems that I had I had no capacity to comprehend. Do you know, you're learning political, metaphorical poetry at the age of eight and you're just expected to just enter into the rhythm of it. It becomes somewhat mantric. It becomes somewhat, somewhat like being ingrained into a, a national unconscious. And I think there is something very, very powerful about being part of a culture that has poetry at the heart of itself like that. And um, one of the things about which I feel great shame regarding the Irish poetry culture is um, that, with notable exceptions, um, there has been a masculinist poetry project in Irish language poetry for a long time where the poet was considered to be almost like a tragic political male hero who wrote very emotional poetry but was typically doing so as a man for all the people and that and um, female poets were um there was all kinds of projects some some female poets were not taught how to write and um, they would have been given a a role of lamenter at, at at funerals but not taught to write so they couldn't write down their laments that's a that's a way that policy and control have gendered based impact um there were some a- ancient female poets who pretended to be men in order to be admitted into a kind of an apprenticeship in poetry. Poetry was considered to be a profession. Um, uh, in the 20th century, there's a poet who said, when you translate it into English, um, uh, women are not poets, they're poetry. <laughs> and that sounds like a- an interesting, maybe slightly sexy piece of poetry, but it's awful because that says, women are written by men and women are shaped into form by men and the man is to be admired for the shape into which he puts the woman that is poetry. Uh, it puts women at once in a disembodied muse kind of idea and, on another hand, utterly controlled uh, through the male narrative voice idea. And so in the midst of a culture that's we're very proud of to be steeped in poetry, there is a deep misogyny that one has to pay attention to. There's the recent edition of the, I think it's called the Cambridge Companion to Irish Poetry. It came out last year. And of the 30 writers incorporated into it, only four are women. And so you see, even still, like that was 2017 that that came out. So there's this fantastic initiative called Fired Women Irish Poets, and it is a, a movement. They have websites, they have pledges that they ask and literate, literature institutes around Ireland to pay attention to regarding their publication, regarding their quotas, etc. So that's that, that's part of the long history uh, of, of poetry. For me, I, I never am sure what poetry is for because it isn't for anything. I find that poetry is, it seizes And unless I write it, I I am not present to myself. It reveals something back to me and reveals something through me, um, which sometimes might be my own dysfunction. Um, lots of the po- poems that I write are simply for me because I've done that since I was a child. I've been writing poetry since I was about 11 and it, it, it's a process for listening into the self and loads of them, you just know from the word go, oh, this is not something to be worked on for publication. This is something where I need to go, listen up, you idiot, pay attention. Something is calling for you, Some some moment of anger, some moment of the unconscious, some curiosity about language, some playfulness. Um, so I've been writing poetry for years and years and years before it even occurred to me that A, I should show it to people, or B, that I should consider publication or performance. Um, and so f- for me, the part of the thing of being a published poet is to hang
0: on to the attention that I, I want to write from my own hunger. Audric is right, of course, but on so many levels than just poetry. I remember being at a retreat once and reading Henry Nowen's book, about silence and solitude. And he talks about how when we come from a great spiritual experience, which could be reading a poem, could be encountering God in silence and solitude, we come with these insights, these great experiences of God's presence. And he offers this wisdom. Don't immediately tell somebody about it. Sit with it for a while. Let it change you. Before you talk about it, know what it is that you're about to talk about. For Padraig, he had never thought about putting poetry out there for the rest of the world. Because it was about his hunger. It was about the things going on within him. But I personally am glad he decided to put it out for the rest of us to share.
1: Now, with information, with history, with a knowledge of form, with um, hopefully um, some kind of linguistic dexterity and um, some kind of vision and some kind of art, of course those things, but those things are never as as I approach the poetry I write, those things are never enough in themselves because otherwise it's just a little clever arrangement of words. Congratulations, like a a nice equation for proving itself. Uh, That kind of poetry doesn't move me. Uh, I'm interested in poetry that's probing into the poet's own hunger, the hunger as embodied in the speaker of the poem the, a national hunger or a an identity-based hunger that's craving something. I'm interested in poetry that's trying to recognize the sometimes um, menacing underbelly that can be present at the heart of everything. Today, I was in the office and I looked out the window. There's a... Where the Coramila office is in Belfast, um, next door there's a house that has been unoccupied for a very long time. And so um, my office window looks out over the the roof of a shed next door and there was a kestrel which is like a small hawk who had killed a pigeon and about five feet away from me where I stood this kestrel had the corpse of this pigeon which presumably was fresh and warm, the kestrel was standing on the corpse and obviously birds don't have hands, was simply using the brute force of its own muscle through its neck um, going down and back up, plucking the feathers away so as to be able to get at the meat. And watching that, you see um, on the one hand something beautiful but the kestrel's bright eyes were... Were yellow. I could see the I could see the pupils of the kestrel's eyes. I was that close. There must have been sun on the, on the on my window. It couldn't. It didn't. It wasn't disturbed by me looking at it. But you also saw blood and sharpness and muscle and death and predator and prey. And I'm interested in poetry, not in drawing us in to those dynamics. And in a certain sense, that kestrel and that pigeon are a manifestation of the story of the of one of the stories of the world and and that for me is what poetry can be hmm.
0: I love how it locates it locates us in a place both as you as the writer and us as readers it it locates us in a place in time in the midst of a story because it's coming out of a, your as you said out of your own hunger and so for to, to engage with a poem then is to try and, it, what I'm hearing you say and what I, what I feel that I do is is to engage with the hunger of the, of the poet and find out where that's coming from and, and to understand how we might be present to it yeah. in our own particular space yeah. and time
1: and that doesn't have to be the personal the, the, the personal narrative of the poet there's lots of poets whose personal lives are private and oblique um, when it comes to their work um, it, it they're just tapping into a broader human hunger for instance um, I do a lot of work where I'm working with people looking at their poetry and, and in poetry I suppose for me I see two things going on I'm always interested in what does this poem know that needs to be written that's another way of speaking about the poems hunger the poems intelligence the poems knowledge the poem's grief there's there's some kind of knowledge of itself that is happening here. And then there's technique. And for me, my first question whenever I read any poem is, what is this poem's knowledge of itself? And if I feel like I can tap or hear an echo of one of the pieces of knowledge of that, that is at the heart of a poem, well, then technique is just a matter of going, oh, you could try this as a sonnet or you could break open the sonnet or you could try it here or you could try this form or you could make a different arrangement on page or you could totally rewrite it. Big, getting more into the hunger, you can remove all those adjectives and all those metaphors and all those um, floral um, adverbs that are just getting in the way of the rawness of what this poem knows about itself. How does it wrap around itself? What's its own integrity? And then
0: I, um, then I want to stand at the at the eye of that tornado and be swept into it. For those of you who write. For those of you who paint or sing, create in any way, do you feel like that? Do you feel like being swept into the eye of the tornado? Do you feel like you're being caught up in something bigger than you? There's a wisdom there that it's wise to let ourselves get caught up in it, to not worry so much about how we do what we do, but to realize what it is that we're a part of, that our spiritual practices that our love for our children, the way we interact with our spouses, the way we vote, is all being swept up into something much, much bigger than we could ever possibly imagine. Uh,
1: so so there's technique, and I love technique. I love form, and I have open form. I love breaking form. I love, all these things, they're all brilliant. But learning about those alone will not a sufficient poem make.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is a poem of yours that had deep resonance for me just a few days ago when I was reading it. And, uh, I would hope, I was hoping you would read it for us. Um, it's called narrative theology number two from your collection, uh, readings from the book of exile. I, I would, I would love to, uh, I would love for people to hear it in your voice. I think, I think meeting a poet is a wonderful thing because from now on I can read your poetry and hear your voice in my head as I read it, but I would love if you don't mind to read that. That would be fantastic. I'm
1: um, I'm I'm curious, Casey, why why it struck you?
0: I especially because of the. For me, it was the, oppos- the oppositions that are used, where God is this and we are this, and I've always, I've grown up in a in an evangelical theology. Uh, that for a long time set God in a spot that was unassailable and that Jesus was a sort of a negotiator who made sure that we were in right standing, but always from a distance. It was a, it was a mediator as an ambassador. It was a go-between and have come to a place where I, I believe the invitation from, from God in the, in the way that I understand Christian tradition now is what Jesus was doing was opening the door far wider and inviting us to not only to understand or be close to or to be in to use a word that's used commonly relationship with but also to have a, a sense of God in terms of how God relates to us and how we relate to him in a in a deeper way. And so when you wrote that, you know, when God is this this break and we you know, we fill in the cracks that that parallel where we are integrated with God was such a powerful image that uh, that I just, I feel like that's the kind of thing that I want to season conversation with, especially on the podcast, but more so personally. would love to just have that be a piece and, and an idea and a constant image that I'm, I'm able to paint for people of of God's interaction with us and our interaction with Him.
1: It's like what we're, what, that it's, if, uh... The poet is never the interpreter of their own poem, <laughs> and so what you're doing is you're 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 co-creating it in a creative enterprise, something that language can do. When you arrange 26 letters in various formations, and I, I'm always curious. Um, it's nice to hear somebody's paid attention to the poem, but much more so they're telling something of themselves when they what they find mm. in the poem because dare speaking themselves through the window of some words so anyway, here's the point.
0: yeah
1: narrative Thank theology you. number two i used to need to know the end of every story but these days i only need the start to get me going god is the crack where the story begins we are the crack where the story gets interesting we are the choice of where to begin the person going out the stranger coming in God is the fracture and the ache in your voice. God is the story flavored with choice. God is the pillar of salt full of pity, accusing God for the sulfurous city. God is the woman who bleeds and who touches. We are the story of courage or blushes. God is the story of whatever works. God is the twist at the end and the quirks. We are the start and we are the center. We're the characters, narrators, inventors. God is the bit that we can't explain. Maybe the healing, maybe the pain. We are the bit that God can't explain. Maybe the harmony, maybe the strain. God is the plot, and we are the writers, the story of winners, the story of fighters, the story of love, and the story of rupture, the story of stories, the story without structure.
0: Such a gift. And is there a a name for the hunger that you had that's in that poem? Um. Yeah, I think it was rescuing myself from
1: really predictable, shallow stories about God. Uh, That bit, um, God is the pillar of salt, full of pity, accusing God for the sulfurous city. That that comes from the whole Sodom story, which for me is a, a gay man. Sodom is a word that was used on me and against me and about me for a long time. So the question about Sodom and the narrative of that in Genesis is always going to be something interesting for LGBT people. And reading that story, um, I found myself thinking about the cowardice of Lot um when this is falling down. You know, Abraham had argued with God to stop this, you know, to stop this fire and brimstone, Lot just offered up his virgin daughters to the rapist men of the of the city, and then he fled. And I found myself thinking, what a coward. And then I found myself thinking, the only person who I admire in that story, well, there's a few people I admire, his daughters <laughs> and his wife, who turns around to see the angel of death rain fire down on a city, and she's turned into a preservative. And so I think that whole project there, for me, gave me an uh, gave me an inroad to go. I think that's that's the um, that's the locus point. That's the hinge upon which I want my engagement with the words of religion to to move around. I, I want to be able to introduce the possibility of lament into my own life, where I'm not only lamenting my life, but I'm lamenting God. And lamenting the difficulty that is incorporated into trying to follow something called God in this life and, and that's not a new project that's an old project the Hebrew Bible knows that very very well and it bothered me that the charismatic religion that I had been part of um, in my teens and 20s had eradicated that integrity of the human endeavor back towards God um I started to read jeremiah and read the laments of jeremiah you are to me a deceptive stream and i curse the day when i was born jeremiah says to god and that's um, that would be considered blasphemous today even though it's biblical <laughs> um, and so i that's the hunger at the
0: heart of that point for me it's beautiful so beautiful thank you so much for taking the time to talk today this has been this has been fantastic, and uh, I, the idea that I'm going to walk away with is proximity—being close and being uh, aware of the stream in which we swim. And thank you for for being someone who translates that into beauty and poetry, and and the work you do at Cori Mila, translating that proximity into hope and healing and restoration. I, I really appreciate it's that. Easy. Padre Gotuma lives in Belfast, Ireland. He's a community leader at Corimila, which is a community that's established to teach and foster reconciliation. He's the published author of several books of poetry, two of which have been very impactful to me. Uh, readings from the Book of Exile, and sorry for your troubles. Podrig can be found on his website and also through various links that I've attached to the show notes here for this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast and you're streaming it from my website, thank you. If you would like to subscribe on iTunes, you can do that. If you wouldn't mind rating or reviewing the podcast, that would be fantastic for us. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. The podcast from now on will be every other week. So not next week, but the following week, there will be a new episode out. And until then, be well, live wisely, peace, friends.